Good morning, everybody. Let's all grab our Bibles this morning, turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter number 3. We find our seats this morning, 2 Kings, chapter number 3. Um, i got to grab some papers real quick. Josh, tell a few knock-knock jokes while I'm going. Okay, there once was a knock-knock. You know what's weird is I can say knock-knock all I want. I don't think they're going to answer. Who's there? Oh, okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Nana. Nana who? Oh, look, Matt's back. I don't get it. Yeah. All right. So I have a couple of handouts for you this morning. This first one is the uh, the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. Can you come grab a couple for you and Ryan? I think there's two there. Alright, so let's go over these charts real quick. Let me show you guys on Facebook real quick what the chart looks like. You can take a screenshot on your phone. I'll hold it here for 10 seconds. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi, ten Mississippi. Good luck. You should start with four, three, seven. Yeah, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. All right, so let's go over this first chart. It's called the House Divided, Southern and Northern Kingdoms, and it goes through the list of the kings. You have Saul and David and Solomon, which are listed at the top because that's all still part of the United Kingdom. Okay, and then we have the Divided Kingdom, which is split into two listings. You have the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom. You have all the kings listed here, uh, starting at Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Ahaziah, they're in the Southern Kingdom. Uh, Athaliah, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, uh, Jehoaz. There's going to be an echo here in a second. Uh, Eliakim. And then in the northern kingdom, you have Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha. Uh, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Joram, Jehu, Jeho, uh, Jehoaz, Joash, Jeroboam, Zechariah, Shalom, uh, Menahem, Pekiah, Pekah, Hoshea, Assyria, uh, or the Assyrian captivity. So if you're ever needing to know which king was when and what came after where and who and how, this will be your list for the kings. I do have a second handout. This would have been helpful on that Kahoot game. Which is why I didn't give it to you. Mm -hmm. <coughs> because I want you guys to just know your Bibles. Well, that's just ridiculous. Well, that's just silliness, yeah. yeah. This is uh, a similar list, but it has with it uh, the books of prophets, and which prophets prophesied when. Because the way your Bibles work is you have the books of history, and then you have the books of poetry, which is like Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. 
uh, in Job is also considered a poetic book. And then after the poetic books, you have the books of prophecy. Do you need another one? Yeah. And then, uh, so then you have the books of prophecy. Right? The books of prophecy work as um, sort of commentary on what's going on during that point of time in the books of history. Right? So to help you understand what I'm saying a little better, in 1 Kings chapter 3, we have the beginning of the uh, prophecies of the book of uh, Obadiah. Right, so our lesson today, if this week you're looking for something to read, you want to read through the book of Obadiah, which is a short book, it will sort of act as a running commentary to what's going on during the time of 2 Kings chapter 3. And this list that I've just handed out will kind of help you see which book of prophecy takes place at what point in time in the books of history. And it helps those reads go a lot more uh, interesting, helps you read it a lot better when you kind of get the flavor for what's going on. Right? Because when you just read through the book of Obadiah, you might not fully understand why God's trying to get the point across that he is. But when you realize what's taking place during that time, it colors what's being said. And it helps you read it a lot better. So they are sort of like um, an addendum, sort of like a deeper lore for those uh, who are into fandoms. It's like a deeper lore into what's going on in the Bible, except it's things that actually happened. And it's real. So hopefully that'll be a help to you as you study your Bible and get to know it a little better. Did everybody get a handout? Okay. I got two. You should have one of each different thing. Okay. <laughs> you confused me. Don't don't say it. Just don't say it. You know, sometimes you just need to let that low hanging fruit go. Second Kings chapter three. We're going to read the first few verses and then we'll jump into it. It says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Now this might get a little confusing to you because it says Jehoram reigned at the end of chapter uh, 1. Where are we at again? I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 3. We're talking about uh, Jehoram uh, reigning... And then we talk, we talk about Jehoram, the king of Judah, uh, and Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. And then we come to chapter 3, and it says, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. It, those are two different people. right? And so Jehoram is Ahab's son, just like Ahaziah was Ahab's son. And what happened was Ahaziah died. We remember that story. He fell through the lattice in the upper chamber. And when he fell through, he, he wounded himself in such a way where he slowly died. Um, remember, they asked for Elijah to come and prophesy. And he kept destroying the armies that they kept trying to get him after. And Ahaziah did at the end of that story eventually pass away. And so what happens is... Ahaziah's brother Jehoram took the throne because Ahaziah had no children. 
So he had no natural inheritor to the throne. So his brother reigned in his stead. So this is where we're at in chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not, his, uh, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the images of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And so what that means is, you remember the golden calves that they built back up out of fear of them returning to Judah. So he got rid of the Baal worship, but he kept the golden calves, is what that means. Now if you'll look at this uh, chart that you've got here, you'll see next to each king's name in uh, brackets there, there's an E, and next to some of them there's an R. You see that? What that represents is he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, or he did that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So you can have a quick... There's a lot of E's there, I know. Well, I'm just looking at the northern one, and it's just all E's. Yeah. Yes, yes it is. Wow. There's a lot of E's in this list, which really helps you understand why things happened the way they happened. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so we see the same thing true about uh, Jehoram. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, in that he continued to worship and have the people worship the golden calf. So then we come to our first point this morning. And our first point this morning is preparing for war. In preparing for war, we see in verse 4, it says, And Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master, and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs, and an hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And the king Jehoram went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me to Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art. My people are thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days journey and there was no water uh, there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them and the king of Israel said alas that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab so we see a preparation for war and verse 5 it says that Moab rebelled against the king and this may sound familiar because uh, Moab has rebelled against Israel before. Now, Moab, just so you know, is uh, it's not one of the uh, warring nations. You remember when Joshua first comes into the, na into the Promised Land. He has 13 warring nations he needs to battle against to reclaim the Promised Land. Right? Moab was not one of them. I said, well then, where does Moab come in at? The Moabites 
Okay, does anybody remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Right, okay, so Joab leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. And does anybody, was anybody watching Wednesday night when I said which city Joab leaves Sodom and Gomorrah to go to? See, what this tells me is, I see a whole lot of, which means you were watching, but that's a little tiny detail you're probably not going to be able to recall. It's a city called Zoar. Zoar is where he was headed. He stopped off in a cave. This story is about to get very inappropriate for children. So Zoar, who, now who was it? Lot. Lot. Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah to go to Zoar. And he stopped off in a cave. And he dwelt in that cave for a very long time with his two daughters. And the two daughters had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah for a very long time. These were very evil cities where people only did that which made them feel good. Uh, there were angels that came and visited Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And while they were there visiting Lot, a mob of these Sodomites came pounding on Lot's door and said, oh, we want you to send those two pretty men out here so we can know them. And that's the kind of city it was. So his daughters had grown up in this city and uh, they said to themselves, hey, we want to have kids one day. We don't want to wait. Let's get dad drunk and we'll sleep with him. And that's what they did. And so they had children by their father. One of such children, his name was Moab. And he went on to be the patriarch of the Moabites. The sin of Lot continuing to pester Abraham even here in 2 Kings 3. So that's where the Moabites come from. And they're not Israelites. And they weren't supposed to have anything to do with the Moabites. And here we see for the second time the Moabites coming in to try to conquer Israel. Uh, and so we see, sort of just like Ahaziah was tested when he first became king over his father, and we talked about that a little bit when we were in chapter 1, about uh, it's a very sensitive time for a kingdom when there's new leadership. Uh, that's happening again here. Uh, Jehoram is being tested just like Ahaziah was. And he's being tested by Moab to see if they can overthrow this new king. Uh, we see sort of a second chance here with Jehoram in a couple of different ways. Because we see Ahab failed to defeat the enemy. right? But he gained the mercy of God for a season. right? That, that uh, Elijah came with that, your days are numbered, and he found the mercy of God. Please forgive me. And then he went into battle, and he failed to win the battle. Right. So he sort of gained the mercy and forgiveness of God, but he lost the battle. And while Ahaziah did apparently succeed in defeating Moab, he failed to gain the mercy of God, which resulted in his death. So Ahaziah goes into battle, beats the Moabites, but then loses his life because he did not find the mercy of God that his father Ahab did. So they both succeeded and they both failed in different ways. But both of their failures cost Israel as a nation a whole lot of pain. 
Right, so Israel really needs a win here. So the question becomes, can Jehoram succeed where Ahaziah and Ahab failed? Ahab failed to defeat his enemy because he fought without the blessing of the Lord. Ah, that was Ahab. Ahaziah failed because he was seeking answers from idolatry instead of from the Lord. We see Ahaziah also failed because he refused to show Elijah the proper respect as the man of God. Uh, Amanda was on uh, TikTok the other day, and she saw these videos that people were putting out about a lot of these uh, independent Baptist preachers. Uh, people like um, Pastor Clarence Sexton, uh, Tony Hudson, and people like that, and taking clips of things that honestly probably I wouldn't ever say in a sermon. Uh, some really harsh things for any person to say. Uh, it, it, even at one point, one of these preachers, and I, I try not to blast anybody, so I'm not going to say any names. One of these preachers uh, had taken a hymn that somebody had written that was a praise to God and put in um, uh, Governor Abbott in place of God's name in that, that song. And uh, they were sort of attacking these preachers and tearing them down for that. Now, there's a reason I don't say the names of these preachers when I tell these stories, right? Because I could very well tell you which preacher it was that did this thing or said that thing. But they're still preachers, right? Which means that they're still God's man. And there is a special sort of protection that God has toward his own people, toward his own preachers. Right? And I, I'm telling you, I've seen it time and again. When somebody sets themselves against a pastor, something happens. God protects his preachers. And even though you might not agree with them, and you might not have any respect for them, we still ought to be cautious about how we use our words and our attitudes toward the office of a pastor. It's kind of like the president. You might not respect the president, but you can still respect the office. Right? You can respect that oval office where great men like Abraham Lincoln, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, and men like that once stood. And it's the same way with a pastor. You might not respect the man or certain things about the man, but we still should respect the office of a pastor. Uh, because that's what God wants. He wants us to show that sort of respect. And, you know, the Lord will sort them out when we get to heaven. And he'll, he'll deal with them in his own way. It's not really our place to get on the internet and blast them. Uh, so we should be very careful about that. Ahaziah's failure was a failure to show respect to the man of God. And we should learn from that. Uh, then we see uh, verse 7 says, He went and sent to Jehoshaphat the king of Judah. Uh, unlike his brother Ahaziah, Jehoram sent for aid from Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And the wisdom of the king of Judah is what seems to have aided Ahab so well before his demise. Because you all remember, when Ahab sent for aid and the king of Judah came and helped him, his advice was, well, let's find the prophet and let's ask God what he thinks about this battle. And that seemed to have served him very well because it was searching for a prophet uh, that led to them seeking and finding the proper answer. So they had information ahead of time about what was going to happen. 
And it was through that that the king of Judah was able to uh, help save the rest of the soldiers in retreating and uh, help them establish so quickly a new king. And so there was some wisdom that aided them in sending for help from the king of Judah. So we see he's already on the right track. Right? He's asking help from his friends. You know, he's seeking aid when he needs it. And this is something we can all learn from. We, so often, and, and this is the attitude I find along, amongst a lot of people that suffer uh, depression or, you know, they're struggling with something emotionally. They don't want to ask for help, right? And it's not a pride thing. And it's not this, well, I want to figure it out on my own sort of thing. It's usually they don't want to be a bother. Right? I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be a burden to somebody else. Or it's this. I don't want to tell somebody something that's very difficult for me to say out loud. And then feel like me saying that or exposing how I really think or feel is going to make them change the way they, see, the way they look at me. It'll change our relationship. You know, our friendship will never be the same. And a lot of times, people feel like asking for help will do that as well. But the truth of the matter is, is that God puts people in your life for a reason. Right? The king of Judah was there and available so that the king of Israel could have the aid he needed. There are people in your life that can help you, if nothing else, just to be an ear. Just to listen and respond appropriately to what you're going through and what you're feeling. And if they don't have any advice, if they don't really know what to tell you what to do, just listening can be so much more help than you realize. We need to learn to call on our friends for aid when we need it. Just like Jehoshaphat. So then they gather together and they come through, it says they came through Edom, right? And then it says the king of Edom joined the king of Judah and the king of Israel. Now, I need to explain something to you here that I haven't explained to you up until this point. We've talked about the king of Israel going to Samaria and spending time with the, Samarit uh, with the Samarians and, and so forth. Samaria, originally during the time of David, and Saul during the time of Solomon, Samaria was a part of the kingdom of Israel. Right? And so was Edom. That was all just Israel. And so what we've seen is through the course of history that we've studied this whole time of Israel's history, we've seen them split once, right? Israel and Judah. But now evidently they're starting to fracture off into other smaller pieces. They're continuing to split and split and split and split and split. Now you've got Israel, and you've got Judah, and you've got Samaria, and you've got Edom, and they're continuing to fracture into their own little kingdoms. And so that's, uh, that's, that's sort of the condition they find themselves in because they're getting further and further away from the Lord. And I'm telling you right now, a signal of getting away from God's original intent, getting away from God's will, is signified by fracture, by dividing, by separation, by isolation from the brothers and sisters in Christ. 
you, I, you will hear other preachers, if you listen to other preachers of our same denomination, you will hear them say things like, well, we're only going to stand on people who stand on solid doctrine. If they don't have solid Bible doctrine, we're not going to have anything to do with them. And you're going to hear them back themselves up by quoting a verse that says, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. You'll hear them say, uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. But those are talking about uh, lost sinners that are going to entice you to do sin. It's not talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And a sign that we're getting further and further away from the will of God is we can continue to push our brothers and sisters away. That's what they were doing in Israel. They were fracturing and splitting up and going into their own ways. We're covering this in 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. That's what the church at Corinth was doing. They had their own little um, sections, their own little groups. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. And the theme of 1 Corinthians is actually about unity. And if you've been following along in our Bible study on Wednesday nights, you'll see that. The theme is about Paul calling them to unite and not divide. We should be multiplying, not dividing. And that's the theme. And that's what we see Israel doing here. They're fracturing and they're dividing. And that's what we see in Christianity today. We see the more pious and super spiritual crowd, the I am of Christ's, if you will, that they're fracturing off, isolated in their ivory towers, spent up in their white robes all day studying scriptures. Unfortunately, most of the time what they're doing is actually counting their money. I can tell you that because I've seen it firsthand. What we should be doing is uniting. We should learn from Israel's mistakes and we should unite because it is this fracturing that will eventually lead to their demise. The Bible warns us. It's giving us a warning before we too are destroyed. He's giving us the answers to the test. Let's use them. It would be like the teacher giving you a test and he puts up on the board all the answers to the test. And you'd be like, no, I'm not going to use those. I'm just going to guess myself. Don't do that. Use the answers. He's giving them to you. But as they're going through, they come upon a problem. Right? See, they devised this strategy. They were going to um, surround the enemy from behind. And this was their strategy because now they had three kingdoms united together. They had the manpower and they were going to surround the enemy from behind and then attack them that way. So they took an extra week, go through Edom, the wilderness of Edom, and to encompass the enemy. But in doing so, they ran out of their rations. They ran out of water. Now, I've heard it said before, I believe it is the scientists have said you can go a month without food and still technically live and survive. But you can't go a week without water or you will die. And this wasn't a week of them sitting around. This was a week of them marching through the wilderness, through difficult terrain. And they ran out of water. There was no water. And the same strategy that would have assured victory for our trio of kings also cost them an extra week of traveling. There was a lot that this victory was going to cost them. And sometimes the greatest victories require the greatest sacrifices. 
if you want to win, sometimes you're going to have to give something up in order to get that win. Sometimes if we want to succeed spiritually, we have to surrender our own personal desires. If we're going to grow closer to the Lord, if we're going to do anything worth doing, sometimes we have to give up what we want in order to do the right thing. The greatest victories require the greatest sacrifices. And then we see uh, in verse 10 that the king of Israel, he, he says, The Lord called these three kings together to deliver them to the hand of Moab. Now, I don't know if he really believes this or if he's just frustrated in this moment. But nevertheless, we know for a fact he did say it. The Bible says in the New Testament, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So even if it wasn't the truest forethought of his mind, there was some part of him that believed this. No matter how small, no matter how deep down, some part of him believed this or he couldn't have said it. After being attacked by Moab, gathering allies, planning strategies for victory, and spending an extra week of traveling, Jehoshaphat eventually gives in to despair. And we've all been there before, right? We all gotten to that point where we're like, how much am I supposed to take? Right? How much is the world supposed to beat on me and beat on me and beat on me until I finally crack? How much is one person supposed to be able to take? Because they quote that verse to us, don't they, that the Lord will never give you more than you're able to bear. And they're misquoting it. You see, what that's talking about, it's not talking about trials and tribulations, it's talking about temptations to sin. So in your life, when you're tempted to do the wrong thing, the Bible says the Lord will never give you more temptation to sin than you are able to bear. In other words, you are always physically capable of denying that sin you know you shouldn't be doing. But we've taken that to mean that no matter what trial you're going through in life, uh, it's there because you're strong enough. You can handle it. But that's not always the case. The devil doesn't play fair. He's not going to let up on you. He's not going to uh, take it easy on you because you're a new Christian or because you're going through something. He's not going to come up and say, you know what, let's give her another week to deal with that. He's going to hit you as hard and fast as he possibly can. The devil doesn't always play fair. And sometimes we are hit with more than we are able to bear. And that's when we need to learn to lean on the Lord. You come to this point and you give in to despair and you respond in one of two ways. And I found that people respond in one of a couple of ways. They either give in to despair or they dig in their heels and they push even harder. And it's always one of the two. You come to that moment and it's sort of a defining moment for you. You find out something about yourself. And you know, maybe that's why the Lord allows us to get a little overwhelmed sometimes. Maybe he wants us to learn about ourselves, which one we are. Are you the kind of person that's going to give in to the despair? Are you the kind of person that's going to dig in your heels and push even harder? Amen. He wants us to learn and he wants us to grow. If you find out that's not the kind of person you are, then you know you have something to work on. The king of Israel gave in to despair. We need strong faith in our moments of despair. And you know when you grow your faith? It's not in the moments of despair. It's not in the trials. It's not in the hardships. That's not when you grow your faith. You grow your faith in the moments of peace. 
You grow your faith in the moments of calm in your life. You grow your faith in those mornings you wake up. You, your eyes sort of open in bed and you have a choice to make right then and there. You can either get up, read your Bible, have your prayer times with the Lord, or you can get an extra half hour of sleep. Those are the moments you grow your faith or not. Because if you wait until despair hits your life, your faith isn't strong enough, it's not going to last. But if you choose to exercise your faith daily, you choose to work on your faith every day when you need it most, it will be strong enough to endure. We exercise our faith every day for the day we need it most. The same reason that a soldier gets stronger, gets faster, gets better with his, with his weapon for the day he needs it most. Because that soldier doesn't want to wait for the day for the enemy to attack to decide to start practicing with his weapon for the first time. You don't want to wait for the day you need that Bible verse before you know how to use your Bible. You don't want to wait for the day for the enemy to come knocking on your door before you decide to start exercising your, your soul. We want to be fit and ready for the devil when he comes knocking. Which brings us to point number two. Real quick, what did I do with my phone? I think it's up there. Oh, it is. Oh, excellent. So point number two, point number one was preparing for war. Point number two is pursuing God's will. And the story takes a bit of a turn here in verse 11. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? That we may, uh, that and one of the kings of Israel, uh, one of the kings of Israel's servants answered and said, "Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah." And Jehoshaphat said, "The word of the Lord is with him." So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, "What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father." and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regarded the presence of, the, of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor serve thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you read that right. Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. And ye shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. So we see pursuing God's will. Before they jump into battle, they stop to find out where God's at in this thing. Something's not right. Something doesn't feel right. I'm going to stop and I'm going to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing here. Verse 11, 
he asks, is there not a prophet of the Lord? They might not have had the answer to their problem, but they knew where to go in order to find it. Right? You might not always know what's going to happen next. You might not always even know what to do. But you know the one who does know. Remember when I was very first uh, started seeking the Lord in my life, I was uh, I was 16, and uh, it was uh, the summer of my junior year, going to be a senior, and I got into a fight, and I got my tail kicked, and I remember looking at myself in the mirror, and there was I had like a black eye, I had blood coming out of my nose, I was all bruised up and everything. And I uh, remember looking in the mirror, I remember thinking, I don't recognize this guy. I remember thinking, this, this isn't me, this isn't who I am as a person. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go for answers, but I, I didn't know. I know I didn't have answers, but I knew where to go to find the answers. And I was raised, you know, sort of going to church. At that time, our family wasn't going as regularly as we used to, but I knew where to go to find the answers, and I did. And you know, when you're in church and it's a large church and there's a lot of different kinds of people there, it's it's easy to get focused on all the wrong things. But I was there, even though I was there for all the wrong reasons, I still heard the answer. I got the answer I was looking for, even though I wasn't necessarily searching for it. And I got saved as a result of it. You might not always know the answer, but you know who does. And that's what matters. And sometimes he's not always going to share all the answers with you. Sometimes he just wants you to trust him. In verse 12, we see that Jehoshaphat said the word of the Lord is with him. And unlike Ahab, Jehoshaphat wasn't reluctant in going to Elisha for fear that he might not like the answer. So we see again Jehoshaphat succeeding where Ahab failed. Remember they said, uh, let's go to Elijah. And Ahab says, or not Elijah, let's go to, I forget the prophet's name. It was the last chapter of the book of 1 uh, Kings. And Ahab says, I don't want to talk to that guy. He's always, he, he never tells me what I want to hear. Which, you know, if he'd have stopped and thought about it for a second, he'd have realized well, that's the way the world works. You don't always happen the way you want it to. So if somebody's a real prophet, they're going to tell you things that you're not always going to want to hear. And so we see that, once again, Elisha is mentioned. And instead of saying, oh, I don't want to go to that guy, he's not going to tell me what I want to hear. They say, oh yeah, yeah, we need to go to him. He really does have the word. He really does know the Lord. You know, there's something about being spiritually mature enough to accept God's answer. Because a lot of times, God's going to answer your prayers in a way you're not going to like. Because God is not your magic genie. Right? You don't rub the lamp and make your wish and wait for it to happen. God's not going to give you something that's not good for you. And instead of acting like my four-year-old daughter who pouts and you know gets mad and goes, huh, every time I tell her she can't have a cookie instead of dinner, and runs out of the room and says, I'm out of here. <laughs> 
We don't need to do that with God. You pray. You wait for God to answer you. And when His answer is no, you don't in your soul go, huh, I'm out of here. We, we develop some spiritual maturity. We accept God's answer as is. Because He knows what's best. Jehoshaphat was showing some real spiritual maturity here. And then we see verses 13 and 14, Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Elisha rebuked the king of Israel for his idol worship without fear of retaliation. Elisha, we remember from last week's Sunday school lesson, he just spent his last few moments with his sort of spiritual father. Elijah had his last few lessons from Elijah before he watched Elijah go up to heaven in a chariot of fire. God placed upon him that sort of same spirit that Elijah had, a double portion of that spirit. And here he is. He's standing before the king of Israel who no longer worships Baal but still worships that golden calf. And Elisha here is telling him, if it wasn't for that good king standing right there, I wouldn't let you walk through my front door. I wouldn't talk to you to tell you the time of day. Now, living here in America, we don't really understand what it's like to have a king. Right? Because in America, we've got certain rights that we're given. One of which is the freedom of speech. Which means you can stand up in the middle of town and start just yelling out about the mayor. There's nothing anybody can do about it. They can't arrest you for that. You have freedom of speech. That means that I could stand up here behind this pulpit and I could blast the president if I decided I didn't like him. We're not... Uh, uh, the only thing they can do is take away a tax exemption we don't have. There's really nothing they can do about it. That's a freedom we have here in America. But he's a president and not a king. And in other countries around the world, that's a terrifying thing to stand up and speak out against the leader. But you try doing that over in China, see what happens. You spend a lot of time getting beaten up by the police and thrown in jail. They do this to all the churches they find. Even hidden underground churches, they find them, they beat them, and they arrest them. Even the elderly. So here in America, in our society, we don't really understand the fear of standing up and saying, you shut up because you're wrong. This was the king. This man could have ordered his soldiers to put Elisha to death if he so willed. And Elisha wasn't even careful with his answer because the sin was so severe. And yet because a good man associated himself with the king of Israel, Elisha was willing to help them out. Sometimes all somebody needs is a good friend. You can't make the decision for them, though. All you can do is stand there and hope they do the right thing. 
But Elisha refuses to even acknowledge Jehoshaphat as king because he wasn't the bloodline of David as well. Also notice he, he answers the king of Judah. Right? If you'll notice in your charts there, you can follow it down. The king of Judah is the bloodline of David. Right? The, the southern kingdom. That one is the bloodline of David. The king of Israel is not. They're a self-appointed king. You realize that the queen of England is a self-appointed queen? She's not a divine queen. She's not been given a God-given right to rule. There's only ever been one divine bloodline through all of history. And that is the bloodline of David. His bloodline is the only true divine royal bloodline. And that is why Elisha here only acknowledges the bloodline of David. Were it not for him, I wouldn't acknowledge you at all because you're a faux king. But then also notice something really amazing happens before Elisha prophesies, right? Before the big moments happen, we see something really amazing happens. We see a minstrel comes to play, right? A minstrel is a musician, right? They're playing an instrument. He asks this minstrel to come in and play some music for him. And when the minstrel plays the music, the Bible says the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha. Guys, I'm here to tell you this morning, music is magic. Music is the most magical thing we have in our world. And it's one of the only things you see that in Bible times still works the same way it does today. Look at Mount Sinai. Ma uh, Moses and Joshua are coming down off the mountain. And I believe it was Moses who said, I hear a noise of war about the camp. And Joshua says, it's not a noise of war you hear, that's music. And that tells you what kind of music they were listening to. A kind of music that sounded like war. Swords clashing and, and loud noises and, and that sort of a thing. It might, makes you think of a kind of music that still exists today. And at the bottom of that, they had built a golden calf. They were sacrificing to. And they had all gotten naked and uh, created a giant orgy there at the bottom of Mount Sinai. The influence of the music they were listening to. The kind of music they picked up in Egypt. They came down there and Moses was so furious, he broke the two tablets of stone that God had given him. That's when they melt down the golden calf and make them drink it. Moses draws a line in the sand and says, all God's people get on this side of the line. And everybody else was swallowed up by the earth. All their sin influenced by the power of music. I'll do you one even better. Saul has an evil spirit come upon him. I almost want to see what animators today could make this scene look like. I imagine that would be quite a sight to behold. King Saul sitting upon his throne. And an evil spirit comes upon him. And David comes in. And he begins to take his harp out and he begins to play that harp. 
for King Saul. And the music that comes from that harp makes the evil spirit depart from Saul like magic. Music works the same way for us today. A certain kind of music can bring darkness upon your soul. But another certain kind of music can remove the darkness and give some light to your soul. Have you ever noticed you're having a bad day and you listen to the right kind of songs? You hit that right playlist? You just start feeling better, right? That's the power of music. Hey, you want to know why Paul told the New Testament churches to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? It's because music is magic. And before you start to hear the sermon, we want to make sure that the magic of these hymns touches your soul. In the same way that this menstrual brought the hand of God upon Elisha. It's an amazing thing to me, and it's kind of magic that we still have access to today. Then notice in verse 16 and 17, after the, the minstrel plays, the hand of God comes upon him, he begins to prophesy, and this is what the message from God says. You may drink, in verse 16 and 17, he says, you may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. In other words, God promised to provide for these three kings just like he has promised to provide for us. But just like with Jehoshaphat, God's provisions don't always come to us the way we expect them to. What did God say to do? He said, dig ditches in the field. These big pits and these big holes. And God will bring water to the valley and will fill those pits up. And they'll be full of water for you to drink and give to your cattle. Now that's not exactly, I'm sure, the way they expected to get their water. But they got their water. I'm sure the children of Israel and Moses didn't expect to get their water from a rock. But they did. We have this bad tendency as human beings, and it's just human nature, that when we want something, we kind of want it to happen the way we expect it to happen. It gives us a sense of control. right? We feel like we can predict it. You know, We have some sense of control over the situation. But when... Even sometimes when we get what we want, but we didn't get it in the way that we wanted, even then sometimes we're still bothered by it. And what's the Lord trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us to let go of that sense of control. To let Him be in control. For Him to say, you can get it, but you're going to get it my way. Because you need to learn to have faith, to let go, and just trust me. That's what He says. That's what He was trying to teach them as well. I'm going to give you this, but not in the way you expect. And then he says this thing. He says, this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. How encouraging is that? How encouraging it is to think that the things that crush us under the weight of their burden upon our life are but a light thing to God. The things that are so heavy, we can't even begin to contain them. God just lifts with his pinky finger as though it's nothing at all. Imagine when you're a kid and you're trying to help mom and dad carry in groceries 
and you got that one bag of groceries that's got a few cans in it and you are really struggling to get in the house with it and you look beside you and here comes dad with two arms full of bags of groceries because as guys we want to get everything in one trip we might break our back but we're going to get it all in one trip i got the water on my head i got 14 bags on each arm i'm leaning like this so i can put the sodas on my back as i carry them but i'm gonna get it all in there and you look past dad walking past you like that and you're like wow he's strong now that's probably nothing out of the ordinary for any normal person but compared to what that kid can do what the dad can do was amazing and that's the way we are with the Lord. It's but a light thing. It's no big deal. It's nothing to God. But to us, it's amazing that He can lift such a heavy burden. Whatever Moab you find yourself facing today, remember that to God, it's nothing. We're going to read the last little bit. It says in verse 20, It came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered, that behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward, and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood! The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came up to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites, so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites even in their country. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kir Hashereth, Kir Hasereth, left they the stone thereof howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom but they could not then he took his eldest son he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall and there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Not just a victory, a just decimation of the enemy has been crushed and cannot rise up again. Have utterly defeated. That is a tremendous victory. So if we'll be patient, we'll accept things the way that God wants them to be, We'll have some spiritual maturity. You too can have tremendous victory in your Christian life.